Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. We are a community of people learning the way of Jesus to bless our city of Boise, Idaho and beyond. Redemption Hill is a unique place. We are a collective of micro churches that do life together throughout the week and gather on Sundays to grow, worship and celebrate what God is doing in our city. You are invited to join us Sundays at 10.30 a.m. in the Boise Friends Church Gymnasium, where you can find the community you need in any season of your life. More details can be found at redemptionboise.org. Up next is the teaching segment from this week's Sunday Gathering. Afterwards, stay tuned for more information on how to get connected at Redemption. We are at the end of a long series that we've called Liturgy, The Work of the People. We've been talking about our values and who we are as a community. And uh, I was joking this week. Do you remember the old sitcom shows that were like recap episodes? It was like the end of the fall season. They do a recap episode. And you were just so mad because they'd they'd consider it like a new episode, but it wasn't a new episode. It was a recap episode. We're not doing that today. I do. We will pray through them at the end, but... Um, why have we been doing this series? Uh, there's a few reasons. Uh, the first is we want to be clear so that when people join up, they know what they're getting into. Um, we want them to know here's who we are and here's the things that we care about as a community. Um, we want to, we also want to be clear about who, who we can connect with and who belongs and what we're doing as far as like our broader movements, um, we are a part of a city-reaching movement called The Syndicate. I think we have a picture of the website we could throw up there. Is it there? There it is. Yeah. Oh, nope. Uh, go to the next slide. Um, yeah, so The Syndicate is our city-reaching movement where we are training and equipping and sending people to live as missionaries in their neighborhood. And we have this vision to see 800 missionary teams in each one of our neighborhoods in our city, there's 800,000 people, so about one little expression of the gospel per thousand people in our city. And um, we, we, we have taken our, our values and, and used that as a starting point for who belongs in this broader network of things that we're doing. And we're also a part of uh, what's called the underground, which is a movement of micro church network movements that embrace the way of Jesus, not just as the words of Jesus, but as the methods of Jesus. And this is, I think, what is most important for this next phase of the life of the body of Christ, is that we don't just say what Jesus said, but that we do ministry and make disciples and build communities the way that Jesus made disciples and built communities. We want to take on the way that he did it. Um, And we want it to be relational and simple and reproducible and shaped like Jesus. And our last value today, you can put up that values thing again. Um, These are our 19 values. The last one is contextualization, which is definitely the longest word on there. Uh, Let's see, three, six, nine, 12, it's like 20 letters there. Um, Contextualization, here is the value. Should be up there. We will not trust in franchising or empire building through propagation. Rather, we will value the empowerment of every microchurch community to contextualize the proclamation and demonstration of the gospel to the people that they hope to reach. Our culture is one of deculturalization and becoming all things to all people. 
we believe in contextualized structures with revolutionary content. Learning from the ministry of Jesus, we will not try to bring surface transformation to culture or structures, but rather contextualize our structures to what people can and will understand so that the revolutionary message of the kingdom of Jesus and the liberating work of the Holy Spirit will be received and implemented. Now, that is a whole bunch there. We're going we're gonna to break it down real quick. What does it mean to contextualize something? It means that I take something from here to here and have it make sense to the people that you are with. Okay? So if I'm here and I, and I use language and I use culture and I use references and um, stories to proclaim or to... Uh, make something make sense, and then I go over here, none of the, probably most of the language, the stories, the way that we explain things, the shared cultural values and assumptions will transfer to that new place. And so to contextualize is to ask the question, how do we take the very root, the center of what it means to be Jesus-shaped people and Jesus-shaped communities and Jesus-shaped leaders and make it look and feel and sound like it belongs in a new place. In, in some ways, it's really complex work, but in a lot of ways, it's really just what we do every day when we try to have conversations with people who come from different places. When you're having a disagreement with a coworker, it's fundamentally because one of you is unwilling to do the work of contextualizing your understanding to the understanding of your coworker. You're not trying to bridge what we call in communications the understanding gap between what I see and think and feel when I put together a message and send it to you and what you think and feel when you receive that message. And so contextualization is doing this work of making it make sense. Now, when we look at the history of mission and we look back at how we have been missionaries throughout the last 2,000 years, in the first centuries... Because there was no power associated with being a Jesus follower, it had to fit in where it went. The gospel, when these new Jesus followers went from, um, from uh, the land of Jerusalem and Canaan in Israel, when they went out to the northern parts of Europe, all the way to India, all the way to south, southern Sudan this massive geographic cloud space, they couldn't walk in and say, you all need to look like us. Why? Because they get laughed out of the room because, well, they probably wouldn't get laughed out of the room. People give them blank stares because they didn't understand the language that they were using. People would look at them and go, why should we care at all about what you think? And so the gospel had to be organic. It had to be something that was naturally occurring in that space and so that you'd have to plant seeds of the gospel and the kingdom and see it come to life in this new ground. And in that new ground, new things would pop up. It was contextualized. You see Paul taking the gospel and turning it into something that made sense to the Greek mind. When he was in Asia Minor, in most of his ministry among Greek-speaking Romans, he would take what he did and make it make sense to them in their polytheistic, animistic kind of worldview. Um, we saw, we saw um, some of the earliest church, Thomas, went all the way to India. And there's, there's still a, a place where people trace their, 
spiritual roots all the way back to Thomas in northern India. And he, when he went there, he tried to find a way to take this story about this Jewish carpenter 1,500, 2,000 miles away and have it make sense in a culture that had never heard of or seen even someone who was Jewish. So there's this, he, he was taking what was there and making it make sense. And then when Constantine came in, we always talk about him because that's like the moment when empire took over and grabbed hold of Christianity and then McDonaldized Christianity. It took the Christian message and made it uniform and Roman. It took all of the theology of the early church that was spread out over this vast region and they brought all of them together and made it a uniform theology. And then they made the practices of Christianity identical from India to Sudan to northern England. Okay? They, Constantine came in and said, it all has to look the same because this is the Roman religion. And Rome is going to dominate in such a way that you will not have any sort of identity other than being a part of what we're doing. And once you... Once you take not just the power of the state, but the power of religion and marry them together, it's an absolute claim on how you will live your life. There's no one outside, no one, no one could get away from the power of the state and the church to dominate and tell you this is what our culture is going to be. And then 700 years later, there's this schism between the East and the West in 1054, and it was primarily over language and theology and practice. There was... They realized that even though they had a, a shared set of language and a shared set of values and a shared set of practices across this Roman church, that there was starting to be these cultural underpinnings that were questioning what had happened. And then for the next 500 years, there's almost no missionary activity across the known world. After the schism, basically everybody went to their corners and the Dark Ages emerged. And, and I think in some ways as a, as a corrective to the empire-making of Rome. But what starts to happen is little seeds of the kingdom start to sprout again over those 500 years. Monastic orders start to create contextualized missions. They started to ask, what would it look like for us to take the gospel that makes sense in Rome? And you see, you see guys go from, from Portugal to Japan. You see guys go from... Holland to Africa. You see guys going from Spain to South America before, way before empire shows up. These monastic orders show up and, and start to contextualize what the gospel looks like in a really cool and interesting way. And pretty quickly, those, those who ran the empires realized that religion was a useful tool to justify their colonial expansion and their, their desire to dominate the weak, undeveloped, primitive world of Africa and South America and Asia. So empire takes over and it uses the Catholic Church of the West to propagate not just the gospel and not just even church culture, but Western culture to create trading and military outposts to dominate new places and to use them to gather wealth and bring it back home. And then in the 19th century, religious missions are used as rationale to, for, the, for the secondary empires to start building these, these empires and export Western culture, modern Western culture. You see uh, things like here in the United States and in Canada, 
native residential schools where Catholics would set up these schools where um, First Nations people would come and they'd be assimilated into Western culture because that's how we used religion was to create a monoculture. Even though they were already Christian, these native first tribes or First Nations people were already Christians and they were being brought to Catholic schools so that they could become westernized. You see, church is cultural training in the West rather than training in the way of Jesus. And then in the 20th century, after two world wars, we were finally convinced that colonialism was not going to do it for us. It took two world wars and about 100 million people dying for us to say colonialism is not going to give us what we want. But what happened was a missionary movement that would be unparalleled in all of history. Indigenous leadership would be trained to take over national movements of churches all around the world. You start to see training centers pop up so that indigenous leaders, people who were born and lived there, could take on the mantle of leadership rather than Western people, white people from the first world. You start seeing a de-emphasis of Western culture and technology except where it's desired by the community, and you see partnerships start to emerge rather than paternalism around the world. This is what we're talking about when we're talking about contextualization, is how do we take the message of Jesus and turn it into something that makes sense where you live without demanding that every part of your life look like us so that the gospel makes sense. We did it backwards, and so we have to change how we think about it. So we're going to walk through some key texts and think about what does it look like for us to contextualize the gospel. So the first thing, if you, if you like writing things down, this would be a blank for you to write down. So pull out your notebooks. Contextualization is about direction. John chapter 1 verse 14 says, So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. This is the direction of God's family. Mission is for me to leave my privileged place of home and go to where you belong to bring the kingdom of God to bear in that place. It's a direction. Contextualization starts with me disadvantaging myself from my home and bringing with me the expression and experience of God's family to where you are. Contextualization starts with me saying, I'm going to leave where I belong and go to where you belong. And that word, make his home among us, the, the Aramaic word they used was probably tabernacle, which is this, this vision of God himself joining his people in the desert where they had made a tent for him to dwell among them. And this is really important. We talk about this a lot, but God himself, when he showed up with Israel... He invited them to care for him by creating a home for him. The God of all creation said, I want to dwell among you. You need to make me a tent. We actually just finished celebrating the, the festival of Sukkot or, or tabernacles as, as a way to remember that God made his home among us. We also see that Jesus, when he came to invite us into his family, didn't yell from afar and say, come to me. He didn't open up the doors and say, find your way here. God himself entered into humanity by taking on these very bodies and made his tabernacle among us. 
this is the way of the kingdom is we go to where people are and we make their home among them, make our home among them. But it's not just about place. When God came to us, he didn't demand that we learn his language. He didn't demand that we um, look just like him for him to come be with us. He didn't demand that we change our cultural heritage or even the assumptions. What he did was he came and he embodied all the things that we needed to, under, to understand him, to be with him. So contextualization is about direction. It's about out. It's about going. The next thing, contextualization is about sacrifice. Now, this is going to be a tough pill to swallow, so bear with me. Acts chapter 16, verse 3. So Paul wanted him to join them on their journey. In deference to the Jews of the area, he arranged for Timothy to be circumcised before they left. For everyone knew that his father was a Greek. First of all, I want to know, how often does this come up in conversations where they're like, yeah, this guy you brought with him, can we see? We just got to make sure he's a Jew. Like, <laughs> it's the same thing with the transgender conversation. It's like, who's checking? Like, I don't, I don't know who's checking. But in, in this situation, Timothy is showing up. And if he wants to belong, if he wants to be an effective bearer of the kingdom message, he's got to disadvantage himself by mutilating his genitals to bring with him the way of God to a people. This was really important to the Jews because they couldn't, their cultural identity was so tied up in being clean and being different from the Gentiles that to invite a Gentile into their house that was uncircumcised would make them ceremonially unclean. That was what they had been told by um, the foolish Pharisees that had come through and had been teaching their way. And so Timothy, you got to imagine that, that conversation, Paul he walks up, he goes, hey, Timothy, you know, like, I give you a lot of challenge. And this is going to be the biggest one. <laughs> he, he's like, you've never been to this place, but they're really serious about this one thing. And Timothy's like, I'll go to uh, Ephesus. It'd be better. Sounds less painful. Um, but this is what it takes if we want to see the gospel go forth, is we have to sacrifice what we want namely our intact genitals <laughs> in, this, in this situation. <laughs> in our situations, it looks a little different. But we have, to, we have to give up something very precious to us to go and be among people. If you want to be a church to reach ex-Mormons, and that's, that's not us. Like, we, like, honestly, like, I don't even... In our neighborhood, I don't think that there's, one, there's one Mormon family in our whole elementary school, I think. So it's not, that's not our neighborhood. We're not contextualizing for ex-Mormons. But I know that Steve Crane out at Eagle Christian, as like we are very different churches, but I really respect that that dude, he wears a suit and a tie because when he does, it makes ex-Mormons feel comfortable. That's why he does it. He probably would rather be in jeans and a t-shirt or it's lumberjack season and uh, <laughs> he could wear your flannel. I love it, Marty. Marty gets it. He's, I love that the 90s are back and everybody's like in their like baggy flannel and yeah, it's, it's great. Um, but I'm sure Steve Crane would, rather, would much be more, much more comfortable without that, but he chooses that because that's the context that he's in. We want to be 
We want to disadvantage ourselves for where we go. And this is probably going to mean that we set aside things like our political views. It will probably mean putting aside your perspectives on children and education and social issues. We can't demand that everybody share our values in the ways that we raise our kids. I got to be honest, that's a lot of the conflict that happens in our community, even in our microchurches, is around differing ways that we raise our children. We won't even set it aside for one another. And when we go out in the world, they have radically different ways that they raise their kids. And what happens in the churches that we say we're so afraid that that is going to pollute our children that we don't even engage with them. But what it takes to be a missionary is to say, I'm not going to demand that the world raise their kids the way I want them to. I'm going to let them have relationships with me and my kids. And I'm going to trust that God's kingdom culture in my family is enough to give them what they need for where we're going. It will mean knowing... It will mean actually listening to what your neighbors value. So when you go, you can actually make sacrifices to care for them if you don't know what they need. In our culture, we don't have monoculture. We don't have a singular culture or set of values. We are a, a diverse set of cultural values that, and in America, I'd say... A singular culture. You know, there are some, but even within, I, I work with resettlement agencies and, and, and refugee resettlement, and they're trying to keep them from creating cultural ghettos with people from where they're from, because they don't want them to be not included with the larger culture, but also because then we get to assimilate them into our culture. So in our, in our world, we have to ask questions. We have to be really curious to find out what our neighbors actually value. Things around like alcohol, you know, like when I'm with people who struggle with alcohol or I'm with people who are from a very conservative background and struggle having alcohol around, I choose to disadvantage myself so that they feel like they can be in a relationship with me and they can see God in me. Because for some people, they look at a, a beer in my hand and they see their abusive father. And for them, that's a no-go. Their personal culture demands that I choose to disadvantage myself in that way. Um, and then with my neighbors, I choose to drink because it, it qualifies myself as belonging to their community. And I like drinking too, but it's, it's because I care for them and I want them to know that. Um, I, don't, I don't swear when I'm with people who are leaving fundamentalism. Like people who come from fundamentalist background, if you say a minor swear word, they will assume that you are apostate from Jesus, okay? Now, when I'm with my neighbors, if I swear just a little bit, <laughs> it will confound their spiritual expectations of me as a pastor and create opportunity for me to speak into their lives because I'm like them. This is complex, but it requires us to know what the cultural values are of the people around me. Um, it means like when I'm hanging out with my buddy Cody, I talk about bicycling, even though I don't understand bicycling and I want to make fun of it a little bit. But I love Cody so much, I let him talk about Pelotons. And I'm like, great, man. 
Let's, let's dive in. He's my neighbor. He's my friend. I love him. And it means that, like, you know, my people, you have to find out what their sports teams are, and you have to tease them just the right amount. You've got to find out how serious of a Dallas Cowboys fan they are and then tease them just the right amount so they're not offended, but they feel cared for. It's a very, it's a very narrow line, but it requires being curious and listening and paying attention. Contextualization is about sacrifice of my preference for theirs. Third thing, contextualization is about a message that changes, but the object of our worship does not change. So contextualization is about a message changing. Let's look at Acts chapter 17. So Paul is standing before the council in the Areopagus, Mars Hill, and he addresses them as follows. Now this is very different than what we see Peter doing in Acts chapter 2 and 3 in front of the temple in Jerusalem. He says this, Men of Athens, I noticed that you were very religious in every way, for as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God, whom you worship without even knowing it, is the one that I'm telling you about. Now, I'm sure for Timothy, he hears Paul start this sermon, and he's like, oh boy, where is he going with this? Because for a, a Greek-speaking Jew, they would have felt deeply uncomfortable at Mars Hill. What is Mars Hill? The Areopagus is literally a forum where they have statues of the gods of the city surrounding them. And where they come together to reason around what is true and what is right. And so for a Greek-speaking Jew to step into that space, it was a threat because in some ways philosophy itself and rhetoric was a worship was worshiping the gods of the Romans and the Greeks. It was, it was engaging on their terms in their space. And so it felt, probably deeply felt for someone who lived in a cultural ghetto as a minority, as a Jew in that space, it felt like a place they didn't belong. And it felt like a place that was a threat to their very being. A threat to their whole spiritual life. I imagine that there's things in our world that feel like a threat to your spiritual life, places that we go. And the question is, can we engage faithfully in those spaces? It feels wrong to hear that the message is changing, but the message itself must morph and pivot to find handles culturally for those people to try to reach and grab hold of. And that's what Paul is doing here. Um, I... I've spent a lot of time with teenagers, and if you speak the gospel to teenagers the way that you did 30 years ago to Gen Xers and Millennials, they're going to have no idea what you're talking about. If you talk about their sin, there's, there's no cultural understanding of sin at all. There's no cultural understanding of some sort of shame about the wrong relationship that they have with God. Primarily for most teenagers, they don't even know if they believe that there's anything beyond their existence in this world and their body. And so if you start with saying, you are a sinner and you need Jesus to save you from their sins, they're going to be like, cool, what's sin and who's Jesus? <laughs> like you have to start further back. You've got to contextualize it in a way that makes sense to them. So with teenagers, what I like to do is start with their craving for justice or significance. Because those are two things that are true that God made them for. A desire to set things right and a desire to be, have a meaningful part to play in the world. 
and use that to help them see that God made them for it. You have to start in a different place. I think with older folks, boomers, you can start with their desire for order and their desire for forgiveness. Because at their stage of life, those are the things that they're craving that are true about God, that God made them, and is a sanctified part of their culture. Their desire for order and their desire to, ex to experience and receive forgiveness. And so when you talk about forgiveness and shame, it's something that sounds like and feels like good news to them. This is going to mean interpreting for our neighbors how their values connect with the gospel. But here's the thing. You actually can't connect how their, how their values connect with the gospel until you know their values. And so we need to have more conversations that are less about do you go to church and less about what do you believe and more about what's important to you and understanding the things that drive them. And then like Paul saying, uh, like my... There's a few of my neighbors where I know that the things that they care about is that our neighborhood is safe and there's a safe place for kids to grow up in. That's very important to them. I think that's important to God too. I think our kids being protected and cared for and have a place where they are treasured is really valuable. And that's one of those cultural values that's true right now is that people treasure children. More than at any other time in history, people treasure children as a gift and I think that's one of those cultural values we can grab hold of and say, why do you think that is? And you can say, I wholeheartedly agree with you. And I think that it, it shows us this deep thing that God put in every human, a little, a little part of himself that shows us our value and our worth. But you can't until you dissect some of the cultural values that you're stepping into. You can say to your friends, I, I see that you're passionate about caring for the poor. Some of your friends, you can say, I can see that you're passionate about the truth. Or I see that you're passionate about the gospel or about the environment. And we can affirm where they have received through general revelation something that's true in the world. Now, somewhere along the way, we decided that all truth that's not our truth is not truth. But all truth is God's truth. And people stumble upon the truth of the gospel and the truth that God made the world in a certain way all the time. And what we want to do is say, you got it. You noticed. You figured out something that's true that God made the world and that the environment and this planet is precious and some, a gift to us. You stumbled upon a desire to speak truthfully in the world rather than to speak in half-truths and lies like so many of us do. You stumbled upon understanding that the poor need a special place in our world. And what we want to say is, good job, you noticed. And that God who loves the poor and that God who loves truth and that God who loves the environment, I know who he is. I'd love to tell you about him. We want to acknowledge where they have figured it out and just stoke those flames. Fourth, contextualization is about yours, mine, and his. Romans chapter 12. Don't copy the behaviors and customs in this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Then you will learn how to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So, in imperial and colonial times, what we did was we took our culture 
and we said to receive the gospel you have to receive all of my culture so that the gospel makes sense which is crazy was crazy and will always be crazy to try to demand that somebody from some other place and some other time with a completely different set of experiences take on all of your cultural assumptions and values just to understand you okay that cannot happen but contextualization is realizing that you have a set of values and cultures and customs and language that has nothing to do with God. It's just the cultural milieu that you grew up in. The very space, the water that you, that you drink and the air that you breathe is your culture. And you have a particular culture if you're a follower of Jesus in a place. And then you go to the world around you and you look at them and you say, they have their own culture that's distinct from mine and distinct from God's kingdom. And my job isn't to overlay my culture and my expectations and even my American way of being Christian on them. My job is to help them discover a third way. His kingdom culture. His family traditions. The king's way of being. And what happens over time is as all of us, with all of our varied experiences and histories and cultural patterns and expectations, when we start living under the lordship and in the family of God, all of a sudden we start to love and care for one another and understand one another because we're moving towards the Father. When you join in the same family, at first it feels very awkward. I still don't understand how my in-laws set up their kitchen. It does not make sense to me. When I go to their house, I've been in their house for 20 years, and I still don't understand why they put things the way that they do. But that's their family. And now Malia and I have this hybrid way that no, doesn't make sense to anybody else how we do our kitchen, particularly the people who care for my children. They're like, I don't understand why you put... I don't, we don't understand either, but it's just our family tradition. But what happens is... When we join in with God's family over time, we start to look more and more like our father. We start to look more and more like our family. We take on the traditions of the kingdom. And that's how God himself is calling out a people among the earth to be a part of his kingdom is by injecting into us little parts and pieces of his family culture. Um, the way that this happens across the world is that you you find people who will be translators and indigenous leaders who can take the values of the kingdom and translate them into a new place. Um, we, we lived in Boston for six years, and it was um, the Northwest and the Northeast have some cultural values that are similar, but many that are very different, um, primarily around family structures. They have, uh, th those who are from the Northeast, across the board have multi-generations that live in the same households and live in the same town and there's a very um, there's a village mindset around family and so when we stepped in we were coming from a place where no one values family in Idaho particularly extended family everybody treats their own family or their spouse or their kids like that's the only family that they're responsible for and their grandparents and grandkids are basically treated as these appendages that they're loosely connected with. But what we, what we discovered when we entered into a place, a small town in Boston, it's this little town called Reading, and it's like 
20,000 people. It has one high school. And most people have been there for multiple generations. Was that we had to get buy-in from some cultural leaders in the city before we would be allowed to make a difference with their kids' lives. Where here, we could start a ministry on a high school campus and I could never meet their family or their extended family and the kids would be with us three and four days a week and they'd just dive in and be a part of what we're doing. There, there was this, no one trusted us until an indigenous leader came along and said, these guys are good. And what happened was a couple of their, those families had some kids that they, they were in our friend's household. Uh, they, they would go to our friend's house and they, they were friends with our friend's kids. And then when they started to come, it opened up this doorway where culturally we were accepted. And that's what happens in every community everywhere is that there's a gatekeeper who's going to be the, the one who's going to say that's okay and that's not okay. And they're going to show it in lots of different ways. But if we want to contextualize the gospel, we have to understand where the power structures lie. We have to understand who's important, and we have to find people of peace who will open up the doors and, and vouch for us as people of peace. You have to have those cultural elders who will give you the approval that you need. So I want to ask you, where is there opportunity to create third ways that are kingdom that make sense in our context here? It's not about your, your culture and what you want to see, but what are kingdom things that connect with people's values of people that you know who still haven't connected with God yet? We'll continue on. We're, we're getting close. The contextualization is the medium is the message. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. After all, who is Apollos? Who's Paul? We're only God's servants through whom you believe the good news. Each of us did the work that the Lord gave us, I planted the seeds in your heart, Apollos watered it, but it was God who made it grow. It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seeds sow. The one who plants, the one who waters, work together with the same purpose. And both will be rewarded for their very own work. For we are both God's workers, and you are God's field, and you are God's building. The medium is the message. It's, a, it's an old phrase from Marshall McLuhan. And what he is saying here is that how a message is delivered is just as important as the context of the message. Okay? The medium, the way in which the message is portrayed is just as important as the message itself. And here's the reality. The gospel of God's kingdom can only transmit through space and time through one medium. And it's the same medium that Jesus used. And it's not the spoken word. The only medium for the kingdom of God, the gospel to move forward, is an embodied human. Who we are, us existing in a place, is the very medium for the gospel to take root. When Paul came and he planted the seed of the gospel, it was because he came to a place, showed them what the kingdom tasted and felt like and looked like, and then they received the seed and it took root in their lives. And then Apollos came along. And he watered it by teaching them, this is what it looks like to be kingdom people. This is what it looks like to walk in the way. But it's always through embodied human beings. Even God himself, when he brought the kingdom, it wasn't from 
It's, it's never been a message from the sky. It's always been inside and through people. This is the way of Jesus. That we would be the appeal, not the text. And like Paul, Paul and Apollos would say, it's not about them, but they know that they are the conduit for the gospel message to come, come through. So, so let's take a look at the modern church today. What is the medium of the modern church experience tell us? It tells us, number one, we're consumers, that, we're, that we sit in seats rather than participate. The medium tells us that we're meant to be entertained because that's, we take cultural entertainment um, pieces and then we use those as a metaphorical framework for the gospel. Um, the content is more important than anything. We don't, we don't care that it's embodied. We care that the content comes. The modern church tells us that we're individuals who decide what we'll join and how much we'll do rather than people who are committed to one another and responsible to one another for the calling that God has for us. The modern church tells us that we are optional, that it doesn't matter if we show up or not. The show will go on. These are cultural values that are built into modern church life that are really difficult to pull out. Even when we're trying to do something different, it still is very difficult. That's, that's why we keep calling ourselves a movement of microchurches, because we, we want to see, we want to rethink that this is not the center of our community, but what we do out there is the center. It's what we are, it's who we are. It's why we kind of face each other on Sundays. Hopefully you can see some other faces in the room so that there's some interactive parts and we belong in here together. Um, it's why we want everyone to serve is because we think that you serving is the medium for the gospel to take root in your life rather than receiving or being entertained. It's why the important stuff happens in our microchurch. Um, if you want someone to care for you pastorally, um, you don't want me to do that. I, I can show up and I can help, but that's not like my best gift. What you really need is somebody who knows you and loves you Someone who's connected with you, who's going to show up in those moments, who's going to be there at the hospital, who's going to lay hands on you and pray for healing week in and week out. If you're waiting for me and Bob and Cindy to show up, you're going to, it takes time. You need, we want the microchurch to be where that important stuff happens, like care and food. We share meals at microchurch because we want that to be the medium for community. Your shared life is going to happen in microchurch. Discipleship is going to happen out of the relationships of microchurch. And we, I think we have some ways to go and there's some more changes to make. But this is why we are a little different. If we want something different, we have to do things differently. and We have to think differently. If we want the same outcome that's always happened, we'll just create a very entertaining Sunday morning service for you all to come consume. But that's not what we're doing. We do it, to be honest, like... There's some things we could do better on Sundays and we choose not to because we don't want you to be entertained. <laughs> because we want you to feel like this is family and that everybody has a place and a part and belongs here. So we're going to stop right now and we're going to do a little bit of cultural exegesis. Okay? What's cultural exegesis? Exegesis is pulling out from something meaning. It's looking at something 
and making sense of what it is from the outside. And so cultural exegesis is us making some important observations about our city. And so I want you to take a few minutes. Let's see, what time is it? 10, 11.54. Okay. So what we're going to do is I have a few questions we're going to put up on the board. Okay. The first is, what are the gods of our city? What does our city worship? They can be really clear, like, you know, Ishtar, or whatever, you know, ancient god you want to bring forward, that's fine. But it can just be us saying something like, we worship recreation. We worship the hills and the lakes and the rivers by our devotion to being a part of them. Something as simple as that. We, we look and we say, what are the gods of our city? What do we worship? What do we value? What, what do our gods expect of us? What are the cultural liturgies that they demand that we participate in? What are the cultural values that are expected of us? When we trespass the cultural values of our city, what are the sins of our city? What would you have to do wrong to be canceled in our city? Um, where do those cultural values align with God's kingdom? And where do they, they diverge from God's kingdom? So I just want you to take three minutes and think about it, and then we're going to talk, okay? So take a minute, three minutes actually. Um, you can talk to a friend. You can have a little chit-chat, and then we're going to share. That's fine. You're going to do it anyways. Why, why try to stop it? You know, I think some of you are probably ready to talk and some of you are still going to think while other people are talking. So we'll just, we'll just start sharing. Um, somebody want to run the mic around for me while we're doing this? Oh, Alyssa, thank you. All right, uh, let's, let's start talking. What do you want to talk about? What, what came to mind as you were thinking through those questions? Crystal, grab the mic. Okay, so something to drop the mic afterwards? No, don't drop the mic. <laughs> They, they're like 400 bucks a piece, so let's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially in like the Northwest is independence and freedom of choice. That is like. Don't tell me what my values are. Exactly. I'll determine if I'm dependent or not. Exactly. Yeah. How dare I yeah. tell everyone. Yeah. Um, wait, are we answering all the questions or just one? Uh, of the just whatever you want to share. Okay. Yeah. So I was just thinking of that because um, I, my mindset is more community based and like how does everyone feel and can we all get together and what I've noticed is that really clashes when it comes to like um, breaching any expectations like I think the biggest expectation of independence is that everybody gets to do 
what they want to do, when they want to do it, and you need to ask permission if you're going to enter into that, um, even in family members. Like all of my family members and even my husband's live within like about 10 to 15 minutes of us, and then there's like his dad's in Columbia Village. But I mean, we're all right there, and my mom has been to my house like twice since we moved in, mm -hmm. and one of those times was last Thursday, but for her to come over, it has to be her saying, I will come over next week. What is a good time for you? Then she picks the time. Then she will come over for one hour. She uh -huh. will not be over for more than yeah. that. It's and community by appointment. That's exactly. Like one of, it's like, or, or it's like, don't ask me to RSVP because I don't know if I'm going to be there because something else might come up and I might have a better option. Yes. Right? The RSVP is the sin of our, of our world, right? Yeah. If you demand that I actually commit to showing up. Yeah, because what if I don't want to? What if I've got something better yeah, going on? Yeah, what if I have something better? All right. Um, yeah. Let's, let's keep going. Jesse? I think one thing uh, that comes up a lot about parenting is like the happiness of our kids being sort of paramount. Oh, that's And that like is our my God. schedule yeah. revolving around how happy my kids are. How happy and well developed. And Andy, did you have something? Okay. Uh, Clint in the back then. Well, I think we want to be cool in the Northwest or Boise specifically, and we've tried really, really hard to make Boise super cool, and now we're trying to shut it down. But it's yeah, something that we have we very much valued. <laughs> and I think we're pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, th there is like a, a value of interesting, new, like we, yeah. yeah. Uh, Matt and then Zach. Uh, this might be a little divisive, but the cultural value uh, that are expected, I think there's a, like a hierarchy of nativeness that I see oh, really yeah. separating and like there's this like if you're like if you're a lifelong Idahoan like there's this value that you have and that's something to be proud of versus like I've been here like 10 years so now you're kind of Idaho versus uh -huh. like we just moved here from California it's like okay so there's this like yeah. there's something that like you can't control but if you come into it there is this uh -huh. almost idolatry of like I belong this is mine yeah. you are trespassing on me literally trespassing on me. And I think that it, it yeah. creates this weird culture that, um, that I see a lot of conflict around, so. Yeah, and there's a lot of conflict around the culture that's being brought in and the culture that is here or was imagined was here, yeah. Zach. I think one thing that I notice a lot with guys is <clears throat> if you don't hunt, especially in the industry that Sam and I work in, is like, if you don't associate as a hunter, uh -huh. then uh, they kind of cast you out a little bit, but that's kind of piggybacking off of being an outdoorsman, like you were saying. Yeah. I think it's a great thing that people do it, but I don't really do it. Uh huh. It's not because I don't like it, it's just because I like to spend time with my kids in October. Yeah. <laughs> you want your wife to stay with you. Yeah. That, it's, it's a low bar. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, that's, yeah, that's an interesting one. I, I've gone hunting like twice in my life. I have to use those stories way more often than I'd like. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Who else, who else has some thoughts? Yeah, Becca. And then Zach. I was just thinking how even though 
there's like 13 miles between us how different the answers to these questions are where we live in Nampa uh -huh. and where you live in Boise. In fact, like even driving in today, I was thinking, you know what, people in Boise don't come out to us, but people in 2C come in to you all the time. That that's a cultural value too. If I live in Boise, I don't go outside of Listen, it. Listen, you know I but love everybody you else because is expected I come to, Nampa to come sometimes. to me. Yeah. <laughs> but I was just thinking like the, the, yeah. the gods are different in some ways, oh, you yeah. know, that, yeah, yeah. and it's still like such a close thing. And you were saying like, you only have one Mormon family in your whole school. Well, ours is probably at least a third. Uh -huh. And so the way they worship family uh -huh. is one sort of God. And so then I watch Christians worship their families in a different way to like counteract that way, but it still is worship. Yeah. You know, so yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Zach. I just wanted to mention, you know, as a person who came out of a very different culture, maybe two or three, three things that really surprised me here is in Boise, people talk about a lot about being family friendly. And you hear it a lot, like, oh, yeah, we moved here because it's a family friendly place. But on one hand, like, like uh, she was saying, if anybody has to come to my house, they have to make an appointment. <laughs> I, those two things don't align, you know, to me. Like, I'm I very friendly when, when it's on my calendar. I prepare myself to be friendly in those moments, and that's what you get. <laughs> yeah, so I, yeah. I don't get it. Like, I think even the biggest difference between Laura and I is that my friends would just show up to my house, and, and she's like, you didn't tell me they were coming. And I'm like, I didn't know they were coming, but they are here. <laughs> uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> because... That's the culture I come from. We just show up. Like, yeah. I have these friends who just show up to the house. And whatever is in the house, we feed them. I, I have friends who just come in and walk into the fridge and get whatever they want because that's uh -huh. you know, who we are. The second thing that really surprised me is the culture of guns. Like, I feel like out here, if you don't know anything about guns, you're out of place. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that is one conversation. Like, I work in a clinic and a patient, if you want to relate with somebody, from a basic level, they want to talk about guns, and I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> and so that's another thing. And then we really like being outdoors, I feel like. But I, I do think we do feel godly, like there is something that I think in this culture is godly and friendly and all that, but I think it's very superficial. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, well, the kids are coming, so we better wrap up. I told them to do this, and so and they're grabbing their snacks. All right, a couple things. What does this mean for us? What we create here is not going to be a franchise system of micro churches and Redemption Hill. We want to plant lots of churches. We want to plant hundreds of micro churches, and our hope is that they look. Hey, Landon, right over there, buddy. <laughs> Landon. <laughs> We're going to hope that our microchurches look like the neighborhood that they go to and the kingdom of God, not like me. Okay? So we want them to be contextualized. We're hoping that our microchurches are going to exist for their community. And Thanks again for listening. Make sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes in your podcast feed. You can find out more on how to get connected with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org slash connection, where you can fill out the Connect card and start your journey today. For regular encouragement throughout the week, follow us on Instagram at Redemption Boise. 
We are so glad you're here and are excited to accompany you in your story with God. We hope to see you soon.